ground to cover tonight, but I'm excited to do it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a great semester learning uh, better how, to, how we can study uh, the Word and be students of the Bible. I pray, Lord, tonight uh, that you would open the Bible up for us even more, and that, Lord, you would let us uh, begin to see the glory of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the need for Christ and the power of the cross and the resurrection and the righteous life that Jesus lived. Let us see that in even uh, greater detail uh, tonight. Let us see it in even uh, more places in the scriptures. We pray now that you would be, edif- uh, be glorified and that we would be edified and that you would move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are at the end of our first semester together. Uh, next week, I will be at youth camp. You guys will jump in with Aaron. He will be uh, teaching through Philippians and finishing his class. But for our semester, this is going to be finished. And then we're, gonna, we're fixing to start a book together. Very, very, very short one. Take you about 10, 15 minutes a week uh, to keep up with us. That's all uh, about evangelism. Uh, and I think it will be a very, very helpful time with us. So I thought that being at the end of the semester, there should be some awards given. All right? And I really only have one, best attendance, all right? So we had a four-way tie for best attendance. Now, let me give you a disclaimer. I'm not really certain this this attendance is accurate. I don't know. I I kept it best I could. Uh, So if you you think you were here more than that person, you probably were. I'm sorry. Uh, This is just what I have, all right? So we have a four-way tie for best attendance, and... Some of them are not here. <laughs> uh, all right, so first was Chris Connor. Now, all of these that I'm reading had 90% attendance, according to our records. <laughs> That's true. Chris is way early for Chris. Way early for Chris. See, if I, if I, didn't, if I didn't go back and retro, uh, you know, mark the rolls, he'd never get counted. He'd be at 0%. All right. Next, I have me. I was here a sterling 90% of the time. Um, I actually think that might be a little high. I feel like I missed, <laughs> missed a couple. But All right, and then Alex and Kim Johnson, and they didn't come. 90%, y'all. They were at 9 out of 10, and they didn't make it today. And I had a gift. And the only one that is here is Tony Snyder. So for you get a gospel transformation study Bible. <laughs> it's the Bible, man. It's the Bible. If I could think of some good trivia questions, I'd ask y'all and let let the other th- give the other three away before those other folks came back. Um, and the re- one of the reasons I'm giving out that tonight is because that Bible is a very helpful tool in helping you see Christ in all the scriptures. That is the aim of that Bible. It's to kind of uh, where normally you'd have little uh, footnotes that kind of give a little commentary on each passage. This Bible, actually at the bottom in the footnotes, says, all right, and this is how that connects to the big picture of the gospel. This is how that, pe- that connects to the uh, big story of redemption. And so it's really a helpful tool for that. And so the, the big picture outline of what I'm going to talk about tonight is in that Bible. And one of the things that I want us to learn uh, in our time together, especially next semester, is how to properly use a study Bible. Uh, and so this is, this is in there. This is a resource that you could have at your disposal. We're going to go into a lot more uh, detail tonight. 
Um, but it is it is in there uh, by a guy named Brian Chapel, who's who's written some very very helpful uh, books on the subject. Probably one of the better books on preaching that I've ever read, called Christ Center Preaching. That's just throwing that out there. None of y'all care. None of y'all preachers. Uh, but that's I, I highly recommend the the Gospel Transformation Study Bible to help you with what we're talking about. What we talked about a couple weeks ago, and what we're talking about tonight. Okay. So as I said, we are talking about how to find Christ in all of Scripture. So let's do a quick review of some of the things that we said last week, is, uh, or two weeks ago. Uh, we said that it's important for us to remember that the Bible is one unified, cohesive story. That the Bible is not a whole bunch of little stories that come together and make up uh, one big book. The, instead, the Bible is one entire book with one main character and one main storyline and one main plot with a whole lot of chapters and a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of detail kind of unveiling that plot. So it's one cohesive story. And so our goal as interpreters of the Bible is to understand how, or, or to seek to understand how is it that some of these smaller pieces fit into the big picture. How is it that the book of Judges fits into the big picture? How is it that Samson and Deborah within the book of Judges fits into the big picture of redemption? How is it that all of these supporting characters kind of point us toward the main character who we know to be Christ Jesus? And so we know that the main storyline of the Bible is the redemption of the world, the redemption of the fallen creation, the restoration of the fallen creation according to the will and the plan of God by his work through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the main character. And so one of the things that we said we need to guard ourselves from is we need to guard our hearts from going to the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and turning to a story about Solomon and saying, all right, we need to do this like Solomon, and we need to not do that like Solomon, and just kind of going and getting moral truths that would be true whether the resurrection happened or not, whether the cross happened or not. Instead, what we need to do is go and say, how does this point me to Christ? And, how, and, and coming out of that, now how should I live? And the reason that we said that is because the Bible, the main idea of the Bible is not do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that and then God will love you. The main story of the the main storyline of the Bible is God has already done all of this because you couldn't do it out of the great love that He has for you. So come to Him. Like that's the story of the Bible, right? So that's again what we're we're working through, what we're working through tonight. And I am looking at the wrong lesson. I'm sitting here trying to figure out why all this stuff's not fitting together in my head, and I'm looking at the lesson from two weeks ago. So that makes a lot more sense, right? Uh, all right, so when we, uh, when, one of the things, before we get into how do we see Christ and all, look at there, you already hurt. Well, let me, give, let me award you your gift. With 90% of te- uh, attendance, always added retroactively, you have uh, been awarded. Next semester, I'm going to get him an alarm clock. I love you, Chris. I know. I. <laughs> but I've been playing. But I've been watching TV. Yeah. That's what Keith always tells me, and then I see him down at the lake. So. Um. 
Now, before we get into kind of what we're talking about in terms of how to see Christ in all the scripture, I want I to go a little bit deeper on what it's not. We've, we've mentioned this in passing before. We've talked some about how one of the things that people like to do is they like to do, they like to see this as an allegory. All right, so what does that mean? A lot of people ask me what that word means. When I say allegory, what I'm meaning is, is that there's a story with a hidden meaning, right? So, so you, the, the way that you might think of an allegory, if you've ever read a poem like this that said, you know, it's a poem about a guy staring over a deep lake. And so there's that storyline. There's the storyline of the guy staring over the depths of the water. But then there's a hidden meaning beneath it that's, that's an allegory that is he's really reflecting, looking deep into his own soul to try to figure out what's going on, right? So that's, that's what we mean by an allegory. So a lot of people, here's, here's how they would do this with the Bible. They would say, okay, Luke chapter 24 says that Jesus is in all of the Bible, that he has shown himself to be there, okay? So knowing that, now let's go to Noah's Ark. Well, Noah's Ark was made out of wood. And Jesus' cross was made out of wood. So clearly Noah's ark is symbolic of Jesus' cross. And with Noah's ark being symbolic of Jesus' cross, it's reminding us of the costliness of our sin. Okay? But what's the problem with that? What's the problem? That, that, for, for a lot of times, that even feels good and it sounds smart. Like that you, you, The people that teach this, they always have huge Bible study classes. Because they just sound so dang smart, man. I mean, th this guy, he is seeing stuff I ain't never seen before, right? But what's the problem with that? Yes, and what might somebody else do? Somebody else might come and say, well, the Ark of the Covenant was made out of wood too. And it actually has the word Ark in the name. So clearly, this is an allusion in the Ark of Noah to the Ark of the Covenant which is obviously pointing us to the new covenant that is going to be revealed in Christ. So clearly the ark of Noah is pointing us forward in, uh, in a tangible way to the new covenant established in Christ. Or maybe somebody else would come and they would say, well, the wooden ark is really a picture of Jesus' wooden boat. After all, what is the ark? The ark is a boat. And what happened to Noah's ark? Noah's ark was in a storm. So clearly this is a picture alluding to Jesus' boat in the storm when he was with his disciples and the boat was going to and fro and Jesus is asleep right there. And so clearly this is reminding us that Jesus is the deliverer for, of us from the storms. Or still yet, maybe somebody else would go and they'd say, you know what, the ark being made out of wood reminds us of the wooden walls that were used to build the temple. And so what the ark is in fact teaching us here is that we are to have proper worship. And proper worship, we of course know, is only possible through Jesus Christ. So do you see the problem with this? Is we've got one boat that we've just said means four different things about Jesus. And we did that in about five minutes. So you, you literally can have as many interpretations as you have people. You can have as many interpretations as you have opinions, right? And, and, and then the, the, the kind of secondary problem with it is who in here can read their Bible like that? When you read the story of Noah's Ark, does, it, does the wood in the boat naturally make you think of the Ark of the Covenant? No, it doesn't. 
And so it makes you feel like you have to go to some teacher that has this great insight into the Bible that you, the Holy Spirit, has not been gracious and kind enough to you to allow you to see it. And you feel totally defeated in reading the Bible because you're thinking, well, Jesus is all the way through Leviticus and all I read about is circumcision and sacrifice. Right? I don't see it. And so it's defeating. And so when we're talking about seeing Christ in all of scriptures, what I want to do is I want to give us some tools. I want to give us some questions. And look, this is one of those subjects. I'm going to give you four questions that you can ask tonight, but we could, we could literally, I could lecture on this for six months and we wouldn't even be scratching the surface of all the things. I took an entire class in seminary that went an entire semester, okay? And he was like, well, and we really didn't talk about this, 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 or this. And I'm like, dude, I've been with you for six months, man. All right, so we're certainly not going to conquer that here in the next uh, 30 minutes, okay? So, so, but but, but I, what I think we can do is see, find some big picture principles that every single Christian can learn to apply in their life that are not, that don't require a seminary degree, they don't require um, great, uh, great intellectual capacity or anything like that. No, all they require is that you be a student of the Bible, that you love the Bible, and that you be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And as a Christian, you already got that, right? So, so, so these, I think, are literally things that, you can, uh, that you, you're able to apply. And so what we want to do is we want to look at, at gospel principles. All right. So it's another, what I mean by that is we want to look at elements that make up the gospel and use those to form questions, to use those to form principles by which we can apply those things to the pe- passage that we're looking at. Because what we want to see is how does this passage speak to the gospel? Okay, and, and, and understand as we say that, that does not mean that every single passage speaks to the whole of the gospel in every single way, right? We know that the gospel is, is creation, fall, restoration, consummation, this whole big scope, okay? And so not everything is always, you, you can, of course, make those connections through there, but all of those things are not directly clear. So what we, we want to see is kind of break it down in some of these pieces and say, okay, how does this speak to redemption? How does this speak to our need for redemption? How does this speak to why Jesus had to come and what Jesus did and who Jesus was and who, the, who, who our God is and all of those kinds of things, okay? So the first question uh, that you'll see, and I put these in red under sheets. And really, honestly, what I want to do mostly tonight is kind of sh- give you examples. It's one thing for me to tell you what the question is. It's another thing for me to kind of show you. And then next semester, when we come back in, uh, in August, we're going to do this together. Okay, so, so tonight you're like, wow, I can't remember all of that. Or, wow, that seems really complicated. Or what, don't, don't worry about that. When we come back together next semester, we're going to work through that together. Uh, and I'm going to help us, we're going to work through passages of scripture uh, in a way that hopefully won't be awkward and freak, freak anybody out or anything like that, but will be genuinely helpful. So the first question is, does this passage predict Christ? Now, this is the easy one, okay? This is the one that I kind of wish they were all like this. This is just very, very explicit because we know that there are certain passages, they just Talk about Jesus, and it's obvious that they talk about Jesus, that especially being from our, pers- our perspective, being kind of post-Christ, or not post-Christ as in Christ being dead, but post-Christ resurrection, we're able to look back and see who Jesus was and what Jesus did and how Jesus lived and what Jesus said, and seeing that and having the completion of the Gospels and the completion of the New Testament canon, we're able to go back in the Old Testament and say, well, obviously that's Jesus because Jesus said that, and Jesus did that, and Jesus was that, right? 
So those things are helpful. All right, so let's look at a, at a couple of examples. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We won't look up all of these examples, but these will, these will just kind of give you some uh, of what I'm talking about. Does this passage predict Christ? In other words, does this Old Testament passage tell us that Jesus is coming and something about Jesus is coming? All right? Isaiah chapter 9, you, you, you all are very familiar with this because you've used this to encourage you. You've used this to encourage you. Now, I want you just to stop and think about what it means that something could be said 600 years before your birth and it come to be just as it was said. Think about that. Think about that. A lot of us were accidents, okay? Nothing happened in 600 years before our birth. But Jesus, Jesus, they knew he was coming. And they knew specific things about him. Hundreds of years. And Jesus fulfilled them all perfectly. Listen to what it says in uh, beginning in verse 6. We'll just read verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, does this passage point us to Christ? Yes. How do we know this passage points us to Christ? Anybody? It's talking about all of it, right? I mean, it, it points us to Christ because it's talking about Christ. And this is what happened. That Jesus was born. He was mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the wonderful Counselor. He did come through the line of David. All of those things are true, right? We know that happened. So we know this points us to Christ. Let's look at another example. Look at, turn with me in the same book to Isaiah chapter 53. Still got this new Bible, man. All my pages stick together. It makes me anxious. It makes me anxious. I don't like it. See, I just turned from chapter 52 to 56. What's that about? All right. Let's just begin in, uh, in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as far as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Let's just stop right there. Does that talk about Jesus? How do we know that talks about Jesus? That's what happened. That's what happened. Is, don't, don't overthink it. Like, that's literally how we know. That is what happened. This was, there are four servants in the book of Isaiah, all of them pointing forward to Christ, right? This is the one that we kind of know most famously. Turn with me to Micah 5.2. Toward the end of your Old Testament there.
Micah 5, 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Is that about Jesus? How do we know? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Even, even, uh, even the wise men, when Herod asked, where is the Messiah to be born? Where do they tell him? Bethlehem, why? They knew this passage pointed forward to the Messiah. Let's do one more together. Let's look at Psalm 89. Let's just look at verses 28 to 37 together. Verse 28, it says, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. He's talking about David here. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Is that about Jesus? How do we know? That's who Jesus is, right? Jesus went in the lineage of David. Jesus is the one who will establish the children of David forever. And who is that? That's us, right? That's the church. Jesus is going to reign on high at the right hand of the Father forever. And we know because that's what happened, right? So, these passages are explicit predictions of Christ that we have seen fulfilled in him. Or, we know will be fulfilled in his second coming, right? I've heard some guys stand up and say, Every prophecy in this book here has been fulfilled. Well, no, they have it because Jesus is coming again, Okay? Jesus is coming again. Isaiah 11 is a beautifully powerful, glorious prophecy that talks about the, the snake and the lamb lying side, or, or the kid playing over the hole of the snake and the lion and the lamb sleeping together. That hadn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we know those passages are pointing us forward to Christ's ultimate return. All right, so let's go to the second question. So the first was, does this passage predict Christ? That's an easy one. The second one is, does the passage prepare me for God's grace? I love what Brian Chappell said in there. He said, grace does not spring up like a surprise jack-in-the-box in the New Testament. See, the concept, and we've talked about this a lot now, so I hope that you guys have a pretty good grip on this now. But a lot of folks think Old Testament law, New Testament grace. They think, they think that the Old Testament is I work, I work, I work. I sacrifice, I follow the law, I keep the 613 commandments, I keep the Sabbath, uh, I do all of the things that are laid out in Leviticus and laid out in Exodus, laid out in Deuteronomy. I do all of those things perfectly. Then, at least as best I can, God will see that and he will, he will, he will love me, he will save me. And then we get in the New Testament and man, we're set free. We ain't got to worry about all that, we just get grace. That's not true. That's not true. 
You're saved by grace in the Old Testament. You're saved by grace in the New Testament. The Old Testament is as filled with grace as the New Testament is. That God has always revealed himself to be a gracious, merciful, steadfast God. He has always revealed himself to be a God uh, compelled by his own love, compelled by his own mercy, compelled by his own grace. And so from the very seeds of the Old Testament all the way back into Genesis 1, the fact that God speaks to human beings, and it says, and God said, we see a speaking God, and at the very same time, a gracious one, right? Go into Genesis chapter 2. What happened? It's not good for man to be alone. What does he want? He wants what's good for man. We see grace and kindness in the Lord. Man rebels against God in Genesis chapter 3, flagrantly disobeys him. And what does God do? God kills an animal and covers the man's nakedness with the skin of the animal, showing again that God covers sin with grace, right? Not because that's what the man was deserving. That's not what the man owed. So when we, when we come to the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we have a good question for us to ask in how, how do we see Christ and, and finding Christ in all the scriptures. Does this passage prepare me for God's grace? Or does this passage prepare me for the gospel? I'm using those terms interchangeably. All right, so the first, there, there, there's two, I have two kind of sub points here. All right, first, some passages prepare us to see and to expect God's provision of grace. All right, so in other words, there are some times when we read in the Bible and God just gives us a glimpse at his kindness. God gives us a glimpse of his grace. And he, what he's saying there is, oh, and just wait. It's going to get better. Oh, just wait. You think that's good? You think that's kind? That's just a picture. That's just a preparation. That's just an appetizer getting you ready for the main course. All right, let's look at some examples. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Are you, who in here is familiar with the story of David and Mephibosheth? It's an awesome story, all right? So, so you have, you know, David and, and Jonathan are best friends, right? So David and Jonathan are best friends, but who is Jonathan? Jonathan happens to be the son of Saul. And who does David become? David becomes God's appointed successor to Saul. God withdraws his spirit from Saul, leaves Saul to ultimately find his own demise, all the while anointing David to take Saul's position. So, so then you have Jonathan kind of caught in the middle. Well, here's dad. I'm dad's actual successor. And here's my best friend who God has knitted my heart together with his. And he's been now, I know, appointed by the great prophet through by God to be his actual successor. So, so you can imagine the situation of, of Jonathan, right? And of course we know that Saul and Jonathan both ultimately die. But Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. He's Jonathan's crippled son. Now you have to understand, in the day, if you know history, you know what happens to the family of the ruling party when a new king comes into town. What happens to the family? Executed. Every potential rival to the throne is executed, right? Well, guess who? what Mephibosheth is? He is the grandson of Saul. He has, is in the bloodline to be the king. People could, it would be very easy for him to get an uprising, to stage a coup, dis, disabled as he is. And yet what does David do in 2 Samuel 9? 
Go find him. Go find him. Go find Mephibosheth. Bring him to my table. Put him in the seat of honor. Let him eat with us. Let him eat like a king would eat. Let me show kindness to him. What is that doing? It's showing grace. It's preparing us. Is that beautiful? That's beautiful, isn't it? Like We could just say that story and go home and all of us would just leave feeling good about it, wouldn't we? It's preparing us for a story of greater grace. It's preparing us for a story in which God's kindness would be shown to us, his enemies. Those we have declared ourselves by our own rebellion to be enemies to God. And yet what has God done? He has sent Jesus and said, go find them. Go find them. Bring them to my table. Let them eat in my kingdom. Let them be a part of my court, of my family. We are those that should have been executed spiritually, physically, forever for our sin. And yet, we have been invited to the table of God. See, this is preparing us for the gospel. It's preparing us for grace, isn't it? Think about Jonah. God sends a preacher to tell Nineveh that they will be destroyed for their sin. Nineveh is not a Jewish city. Nineveh is a city of wickedness. God has not entered into a covenant with Nineveh. Nineveh, God God should do to Nineveh as he has done to Sodom and Gomorrah. It should be the same. And what does God do? He raises up one of his men, his preacher, and he says, Go preach to Nineveh. His preacher says, no thanks, don't like Nineveh, won't go. God puts him in the belly of the fish. says, go to Nineveh. Sends his preacher to Nineveh anyway. Nineveh repents. They turn to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Lord removes his judgment. God provided them with a preacher that they didn't ask for. To give them a grace that they didn't deserve. Is that a beautiful story? But that's not the complete story, is it? Because what has God done for us? God has sent us a Savior that none of us asked for. To offer us a grace that none of us deserve. That we might be delivered from our own wickedness. Though he should do to us just as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's preparing us for grace. It's preparing us for grace. Genesis 6, Noah. Noah and the ark. We've, we've already talked about the ark not being the cross and all that stuff, right? But what does the ark do? What, what does Noah do? Why did God save Noah? Somebody throw an answer. Why, why did God save Noah? Why? God saved Noah? Yeah. For creation to continue. Okay. So it wasn't anything Noah did, right? God doesn't save Noah because Noah's a great man, does he? Matter of fact, we see Noah end up drunk in a tent with his daughters. Noah is, in fact, a man that is of, of no particular sterling character, okay? He's just like all the rest of the Bible stories that we read about. Men that have great qualities but a lot of warts too, right? A lot of issues too. 
I don't know about y'all, that, I find some refuge in that because I know, the, I know the wickedness of my own heart. The whole earth should have been destroyed by God, shouldn't it? The, the, Lord, the, the world was so wicked that God regretted having made it. He should have destroyed it all. And yet what did God do? He kept a remnant. By his grace, he came to Noah. By his grace, he told Noah to build the ark. By his grace, Noah's family was on the ark. By his grace, the story of redemption carries on. See how that points us forward and how that prepares us for the Lord Jesus to come? Because is that not, right now we live in a world of wickedness, don't we? We live in a world, and if all of us are honest and we are truthful, not a single one of us deserves to be saved by God. Not a single one of us. And yet, as sleepy as maybe we are, as bored as sometimes we get, as lackadaisical we get in our faith, here we are. Here we are as the children of God. Here we are as those who have been saved. Look at the story of Noah. Look at the story of yourself. It's preparing us for the gospel. The second thing I want us to see under this category of how does this prepare me for grace is while some, pa- while some passages kind of point us forward and prepare us to, re- to expect God's provision of grace, other passages prepare us to understand our need of grace, right? So, so, so the way some passages work to help us see the gospel and see Christ in the Old Testament is they show us and remind us and teach us of how utterly wicked we really are and how utterly wicked mankind is and how badly we had to have a Savior and how badly it had to be grace or hell and there was no in-between. A couple of passages that I wrote down. We'll go through these a little more quickly. Genesis 22. You know that, that story, right? That's the story in which, which Abraham and Sarah finally get their son. They finally get Isaac, the one that God is going to use, and he's going to use him to make, make, uh, make the descendants of Abraham more numerous than all of the stars, right? He said, what does God tell Abraham to do with Isaac? He tells him to take him up on top of the mountain, to tie him to the altar, to cover him in wood, and to sacrifice him, to put the knife in his heart, and to burn the remains, essentially. Except what does God do? Abraham has the knife hoisted in the air, ready to plunge it into the the heart of his beloved son. And over, he looks in the briars, and there's a bull caught by his horns, A lamb caught by his horns. And the Lord tells Abraham, I have provided for you a substitute. Should have been Isaac. Ended up being the lamb. Who does that point us to, y'all? Who does that point us to? It points us to the greater substitute, doesn't it? It points us to the spotless lamb, the worthy lamb, the one-time sacrifice for all. 
It is preparing our hearts, knowing it should be our lives on the altar. It should be our hearts with the knife being plunged into it. It should be us having the nails driven through our wrists and driven through our feet. It should be us bearing the crown of thorns and the curse of the tree. But it will not be us. God has sent to us a substitute, the Lord Jesus. The sacrificial system. Let's just talk about that for a second. You read through Leviticus, and I know what you think, or, and I have the Levitical law right there above you. you, you, if you if a lot of you have done the read through the Bible in a year, and you're reading through it, and you get to Leviticus, it starts bogging down a little bit, doesn't it? You know? As a matter of fact, a lot of people, that's kind of where they throw in the towel. I'm hanging with you. Genesis, interesting stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm fired up. Exodus, it's really long, but it's good. I'm, I'm with you. Leviticus, come on, man. Come on, man. Talking about bodily discharges, no thanks, right? I'm good. And yet, who's the main character? What's the main storyline there? Jesus and redemption. What does the law do? The law shows us what holiness looks like. The law shows us what true righteousness looks like. It gives us a tangible picture of it. And what do you do as often as you read the Levitical law, what every single Bible reader I have ever known did, the first time they read Leviticus said this, how in the world can you even keep up with all of this stuff? Right? Somebody testify. You read all that stuff, you just say, how in the world could these people even know what this stuff was? What are you doing? You're measuring your life by that. And you're thinking, if that's what I've got to do to be right with God, I can't be right with God. And if you can't be right with God, what do you have to have? Grace. The gospel. Christ, who kept all 613 laws perfectly organized in his brain and lived out in his life. Think about that. The sacrificial system. Man, you got to offer a pigeon for this and a bull for that and a lamb for this. And yet, what is Jesus? Perfect fulfiller of every single one of them. The law, the, the sacrifices, it all points us to Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about the way God is redeeming the world. Do you see how the Old Testament sings of the gospel? How the Old Testament sings of grace? So first, does this passage predict Christ? Secondly, does this passage prepare me for God's grace? Does it prepare me for the gospel? Thirdly, does this text reflect key aspects of the gospel does this text reflect key aspects of the gospel so first i want to think about it like this what does this text reflect about the nature of god who provides redemption what does this this, this is very closely related to what we just talked about but but what does this text reflect about the nature of god who provides redemption another way for we might think about this is what does this what does this passage teach me about the main character? That's a great question to ask every time you read the Bible. What does this passage teach me about the main character? Because the more you know about the main character, the better you understand the plot line. And the better you understand how all of this connects to you and applies to you and means to you, right? So let's think about some, some Old Testament examples. Genesis 45. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Joseph. 
But Joseph was the apple of Jacob's eye, right? He was, he was his daddy's boy. He was the one his daddy had always waited for, loved. And he was the beloved son. And his brothers were jealous of him. Now, I don't think, when you read the, the story, I don't think Joseph does himself any favors. Like, if, when you're teaching your kids, you know what a good thing to teach your kids is? If they have a principle, I mean, if they have a dream that teaches them that one day all of their uh, siblings are going to be bowing down to them, tell them to keep that to themselves. That's just, that's just good parenting, you know? But Joseph didn't. Joseph, he spills the beans. He tells it, and they're, they're just enraged with jealousy, and they decide to kill him, and Reuben's there at the right time, and they don't kill him, and then Reuben's gone at the wrong time, and so they sell him into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house, and he prospers, right? Things are great. Until Potiphar's wife has an eye on old Joseph. Apparently Joseph was a strapping young man. Ruddy in appearance, as the Bible says it. Ruddy's a, a cool way of saying he was handsome. He had it going on. Like John Stone on, you know. He had it going on. He was cool. He was suave. He had it going down. Had his pontoon boat rocking, Keith. All right. And then... All of a sudden, he's caught in a bad situation. She wants him in bed, and she, he runs out the door. She grabs his cloak, and he's, she's left her hand, and she says he tries to rape her. And where does he find himself? In prison. Except God was in that prison with him. God was in with his brothers. God was with him in Potiphar's house. And now God is still with him in prison. And it just so happens that two men from the king's court are there, they have dreams. Joseph interprets them. They say, well, I'm going to get you out. Guy goes out and forgets. Until Pharaoh has a problem. He said, wait a second. I know this handsome guy in a bad spot back in jail. that might could help us out. And, of course, we know Joseph ascends to be the second greatest man in all of Pharaoh. In fact, probably in all of the world at the time. And God uses him in the midst of a famine to save not just Egypt, but to, in fact, save Israel. To save Jacob. To save the very brothers that sold him into slavery and wanted him dead. And what, is, when, when, what does Joseph tell them? In Genesis 45, 7 and 8 he says, And God sent me before you. God sent. God sent. They sold him. Potiphar's wife accused him. God sent him. Don't miss that. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. It was you who sold me into slavery. It was Potiphar's wife who wrongly accused me. It was me that was in prison. But it was God. But God sent me. Chapter 50 verse 20 in reflection. If you look back over his life. He says it's for you. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, does that teach y'all something about God? That teaches you something about God, right? The goal of the story of Joseph is not try not to have a family like Joseph. The goal of the story of Joseph is not try to be courageous like Joseph. The story of Joseph is about a God that is so great that he takes the wickedness of the world people that even sin against you and he manipulates evil so that he uses it as the very thread with which he weaves together the tapestry of his own providence 
for your good and for his glory. He's a God that is so good that the wrong people are, 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 are not there at the right time and the right people are there at the right time so that he can get you ultimately where you need to be to serve the purpose that he has put you there for. He is a God that is so good that no matter who you are or what your story is, one day, and it may not be until the judgment seat, you will look back over the whole of your life in retrospect and say, you know what, they may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They may have meant it for my destruction, but God has used it for my good. They may have used it for my, intended it for my shame, but God has used it for his glory. How does that not point us to Christ? Does that not point us to Christ? Is that not what Christ is going to ultimately bring about for us? Is that not, is that not what the gospel, the ends of the gospel is continually pointing us to? The day in which all of the providential work of God comes together. And is Christ not the one that goes to the cross at the hands of evil men and yet at the very same time is sent there by God the Father? Yeah. We won't even worry about the next one. Let's look at the, let's look at, uh, the second part of under, underneath this. What does this reflect? So first, what does this uh, reflect about the nature of the God? What does this tell us about the, the main character or, and then the second one, what does this text reflect about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? So the second part of this is not what does this say about God, but what does this say about us? How, how does this speak to our condition? How does this speak to our brokenness? Because as often as it speaks to our brokenness, it speaks to our need for whom? Christ. Right? You guys see how that's not superficial to find, to find the gospel this way in the Old Testament? It's not superficial. It's easy. It's there. You just have to think this way, right? As often as we see the condition of fallenness, as often as we see revealed the, the depths of our sinfulness, at the very same time we are having revealed to us the depths of our need for Christ and is pointing us forward to what Christ will do for us and how Christ will overcome not just the penalty of our sin, but the power of our sin so that now we can live in gospel resurrection victory, right? Let's look at it. Let's, let's think about an example here. Let's look at the, uh, the second one I have there. 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 is the story that all of you are very familiar with. I, the reason I have all these passages is because what I want you to see is that these things apply to those more anonymous passages just as truly as they apply to the ones that you're very familiar with, okay? So I wanted to show you both. Time's just not going to allow that. So let's look at the very familiar one. This is the story about, about David. But if you're looking at the Song of Solomon, this would be true. If you, look, if you were looking at the uh, Lamentations, these are the questions that you could ask, right? These are the same thing. That's, that's the point here. All right, so in 2 Samuel 11, what do we have? We have David was God's chosen king for Israel. He was the man that God was going to use, and he entered into a covenant with David that he would establish David's throne forever, that David would have a throne and that he would be shown to be God's chosen man, and that throne would endure forever. And in fact, the descendants of David, the, the kingdom of David, would endure forever. Now, all of us know that along the way, eventually, the king, the, the line of David ultimately ends, right? They're executed. And they're, they enter into exile. So that in and of itself is pointing us to whom? Christ, who comes in the line of David. But in, in 2 Samuel 11, this is where 
David sins for Bathsheba, right? David has been an honorable king. God has brought him victory in everything that he has done. No enemy has been able to stand against him. Not even Saul with God's army could stand against David. Because David was God's man. And David was the man that God was going to use for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And then one day up on the roof, he looks out and there is a striking woman. And by all indications, he, has, he sends for her and he rapes her. Not only that, he then says, oh, she's pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, bring me Uriah. He comes in, he lies to Uriah, he bears false witness, covering up his wickedness. Sends Uriah to sleep with his wife. Uriah, being such an honorable man, refuses to do it. God says, send him back to me. Or David says, send him back to me. And then this scene takes place. In the letter that he gives to Uriah, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He has Uriah murdered to cover up his own wickedness so that he could marry Bathsheba and give, and give birth to what they would assume would be a legitimate child. But if David can fall... And if David could not live a life of righteousness, what about us? Does this not teach us about our sin? Even those of us who are trying to walk with the Lord. David wrote the worship book of the Bible. Most of it at least. David is remembered in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. This teaches us about our sin, doesn't it? We don't just need Jesus' grace one time, do we? We need Jesus' grace moment by moment. Because I can tell you, I know my heart well enough to know that I am one second away from doing just about anything. The worst evils, the worst wickedness that you can imagine. I'm about one second outside of God's grace, outside of God's will, outside of, outside of God's pro, uh, provision and protection. I'm about one second out from being David. So for the Christian, David's life does what? It calls us back to the gospel. Too often we say, I'm saved, I'm, now let's move on. But we read stories like David and it says, what do I need? I need grace again, Lord. Give me the gospel again, Lord. Give me strength in this moment, Lord. Let me, let me survive this moment. Let me live for your joy. Let me live for your delight right now. God, give me strength now. Fill me with your spirit now. Let me have kindness and gentleness and the fruit of the Let me have all that now, Lord. I need you now. Think about how often you can read through the Bible and it can speak to your sinfulness and how often that points you to Christ, right? Christ is the center of the story of David and Bathsheba. Christ is the center. Not David, not Bathsheba, not the prophet, not, not anyone. Christ. Finally, the last point, the last question, we'll cover this one quickly. Is this text a result of Christ's work? Is this text a result of Christ's work? I hope there's something uh, that, that you can pick up in my preaching. Um, that I, I don't necessarily do perfectly, but I, I, I attempt to do it every week. It's, I think there's a really important order that comes in the Christian life that it's easy for us to switch around. All right, and Here's the order, I think. 
I think the, what the Bible teaches us and what the gospel insists upon us is that being comes before doing. Being comes before doing. That before I can do what God would have me to do, I have to understand and be who God has called me to be. That in other words, until I am abiding in Christ, and I am in union with Christ, and I am delighting in Christ, and I am walking with Christ, and I am loving Christ, well, I'm certainly not going to be the evangelist that I need to be. right? I'm not going to do evangelism the way I need to do evangelism. I'm not going to do missions the way that I need to do missions. I'm not going to be the neighbor that I need to be. I'm not going to be the husband that I need to be. I'm not going to be the daddy that I need to be. All those things that I need to do, I can't do any of those things under Cody's strength. That if, if it was all about the doing, if, the, if this book is about doing, then Jesus' life wasn't really necessary. But what Jesus is calling us to in the gospel is come, abide in me, be with me. And as you are yoked to me, we're going to walk through parenting together. And out of the overflow of your union with me, out of the overflow of you being attached to me as the, uh, as the, as the vine and you as the branch, out of the overflow, this fruit is going to bear in your life. I think what most of us have associated with a Christian life, and unfortunately has, has leaned into legalism perhaps, is we think, well, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. I can't do, can't do, can't do, Right? And what is Jesus, what is the invitation of the New Testament? Come to me and rest. Come to me and rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. doesn't mean that there's, no, we, we talk all the time, you got to lay down your life and all those things. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It means that you aren't the one that has to do it. It means that you can have delight because you are being in Christ. So, so, so the way that Chapel says it is like this, that indicatives always come before imperatives. In other words, who you are always leads to what you do. So before you hear, do this, do that, do this, cultivate in your soul gospel passion. Cultivate in your soul a, a, a love and an admiration and a devotion to Christ. And as you run after Christ, do you know what you're going to find yourself doing? Those things that he delights in. Those things that are in his word. Those things that he teaches us to do. Those things that are all fruits. Uh, some examples that they give us, that, that I give you uh, here, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a perfect example. The, the Ten Commandments are like the ultimate checklist of things to do and to not do, right? Except what happens just before the Ten Commandments? He says this, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before the Ten Commandments come, you know what God says? He says, I am your God and you are my people. This is who you are. I have delivered you from slavery. I have delivered you from oppression. I have delivered you from bondage. You are the apple of my eye. I have chosen you, not because you are great, but just because I love you and I delight in you and you are mine. So, being, knowing my love, knowing my affection, knowing what I have delivered you from, go and live a life set apart. Go and live like it. 
Go and live not like all these other people live who don't know my love. Go and live not like all of these people who don't know my, my power and don't know my provision, who've never seen bread fall out of the sky. Go and don't live like them. Live as one set apart, one who know that there is something greater here. Right? So even in the Ten Commandments, what is he saying? Before doing, there's being. Before doing, there's being. Be my children. Know my love. Understand my affection. Understand my commitment and my faithfulness to you. And you, knowing all of that, go in gratitude, go in passion, and live your life in gratitude, thankfulness, worship, and praise. Right? Be, then do. Think about Romans. Uh, you know, with my, my group of guys, we're reading through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is structured. And a lot of Paul's letters are structured like this. But you have like 11 chapters. 11 chapters of like the deepest, most profound theology perhaps in all of the Bible. I mean, man, he gets deep. Paul's like up in here with it. And you're just, you know that's what Peter's talking about when he's like, sometimes I don't even know what Paul's talking about. And he's talking about the glory of Christ. And he's talking about how you were in sin and how you were a part of this creation. You were without excuse and you were suppressing the truth. And then you were not seeking after God and not wanting God and not looking for God. But then God came after you. You were an enemy of him, and God, seeing you as his enemy, wanting you as his son, came after you. And so he has adopted you, and now you are his elect, you are his people, and nothing can separate you from his love. You've been grafted in to the tree of Israel. And then he goes 11 chapters after, and he gets into chapter 12, and he says, So then, go therefore and be a living sacrifice. This is worship that is holy and pleasing to God. In other words, this is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. This is what God has done. This is what God is still doing in you. This is who God is making you. This is how God is transforming you. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is the unbreakable bond of God's love to you. So knowing all of that, Go. Go and live as you should live. Go and live as though you have been transformed. Go and don't be conformed to the world. They are enemies of God. No, go and be children of God, living in courage and valor through the Spirit of God that was given to you as a spirit of adoption by whom you might cry, Abba, Father, because God is your dad. Go. You, you now be, you are, so go and do and become. Right? So even in the structure of Paul's letters, we see this. So I think these are four principles, four questions that you can ask and you come to the text and, and, and hope you can see. These are simple. These are straightforward. These are, not, these, are not, these are not brain surgery kind of things, but these are helpful, helpful tools that you can go and you can see Christ in all the scripture that you might glorify Christ and see him in his supremacy even greater. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is remarkable. I pray that you 